All right, welcome everyone. Just a few moments, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7. So if you have your Bible, you can take a look there. But let me tell you why we'll be looking at Matthew 7 and some other passages today. We are in between series in this hour, which we call the Discovering God Hour. And several times throughout the year, we do outreach series in this hour. And we send invitations to the community to come. And we'll be doing that in several weeks. But in the weeks in between, uh, I get to just talk about whatever I feel like which is always dangerous because whatever I feel like getting off my chest, I just say during these weeks in between series. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be doing uh, miscellaneous topics. I'll tell you what they are. And then uh, we will start a series called 10 Keys to Unlocking the Bible Story, and we're going to invite the community to that. We encourage you all to be here for those series of 10 messages as well because it will be, I think, of help to our folks and also for you to meet the people that we invite from the community. But it will be, a, we think, a good introduction to the Bible and a good introduction of our church to this community. So 10 keys to unlocking the Bible. But prior to that, we have some holidays coming up. Two weeks from today is Easter. Then a couple weeks after that is Mother's Day. And on Easter, we don't meet for the educational hour at all. And then uh, on Mother's Day, uh, breaks up the series. And so it'll be after after Mother's Day, middle of May, we will start a series called Moving to Maturity. And then after that series is finished, we'll do the 10 keys to unlocking the Bible. Prior to that, uh, I want to spend a few weeks looking at passages in the Bible that are uh, misquoted, misused. And there are a bunch of them. Passages that people commonly quote, but quote out of, out of context. Now, why do I want to do that? Well, because we are a church that is committed to the Bible, as evidenced by our name, Community Bible Church, as evidenced by our motto, which is we are the family of God built on the Word of God to the glory of God. So the Bible is central to uh, our ministry here and what we do. But we want it to be more than a commitment that is nominal in name only. We want our commitment to the Bible to be both in practice and in use of the Bible. So we're not content to simply teach the content of the Bible. We want those of us who teach it and then those who who hear it, all of us, to be doers of the Word. So we want to be true to our name, Community Bible Church, and our, our motto by putting what we learn into practice, but also making sure that we're careful to use the Bible in an appropriate way. And so when the Bible is misused, it dishonors uh, the God who gave it. If we believe that the Bible is God's Word, then we need to take pains to use it in a correct way. So that is why we teach principles of how to interpret the Bible in two courses that we offer in our Midweek Community Institute. One of those courses is how to get the most out of your Bible. And I'm in the midst of teaching that on Wednesday nights now. And in fact, this Wednesday, we will begin, over the next couple of weeks, looking at principles of how to interpret the Bible. So even if you've not been in that class, which started back in September, we have only four weeks left, but you are welcome to come and sit in Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. But we offer that class regularly 
because it's one of the core courses that we want everybody to go through. So we do that in that class and then also in a class called Master Plan for Life, which uh, I call a systematic theology for regular people. And uh, it takes the major doctrines taught in the Bible and then breaks them down in a way that are hopefully understandable uh, for all of us. But one of those doctrines is about the Bible itself, the doctrine of the Bible, and uh, how it's put together and how it should be interpreted and applied. So in both of those classes, both of which are core classes in our Community Institute curriculum, we do that because it's that important. It's extremely important that if we're going to be Bible people, we use the Bible the right way. Now, there are a number of principles that we go through in those courses, but for now, one summary principle that will help you, in most cases, avoid misquoting the Bible, misusing the Bible, is this. Just, just apply this principle all the time when you're reading the Bible when you're quoting the Bible. Context determines meaning. Context determines meaning. The meaning of a word is determined by its context. And that's why you look up a word in the dictionary, most often there's more than one definition there, right? Because depending on the context, that word can be used different ways. So context determines meaning of of a word. Words don't have inherent meaning. They have their meaning by virtue of their use. And what lexicographers do, that is, people who write dictionaries, is they record the way a word is used uh, in contemporary usage. And that word may be used three different ways or five different ways, and that's why you'll have three or five different entries for a particular word. So context determines meaning even just for a word. But beyond that, context determines meaning for a statement, a sentence, or or a paragraph. And so as you read a passage of the Bible, one of the things you want to do is just ask yourself, what's what's the context here? And start with the immediate context. What's the, what's the surrounding context, the verses? What's the subject matter that's being addressed here that this now line, this verse is a part of? And if you'll do that, then most often you'll avoid quoting a verse out of context. But unfortunately, that's not what is often done, especially with some passages that are well known. They are quoted They are sometimes trump cards that people use. Well, what about this? And then they quote it, and that's supposed to end discussion. But often it's been quoted out of context. So I'd like to go through a few of those. I don't know how many we'll get on each uh, each week, but we have a few weeks to, to do this. And the first one, and perhaps the one that is most often misquoted, is in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Judge not or you too will be judged. Or in the King James, judge not that ye be not judged. So this is the trump card for many people, and especially in our culture, a culture that prides itself on being tolerant of all views and thus non-judgmental. Now, that pride and non-judgmentalism only goes so far. (laughs) It's only until... Uh, the culture encounters somebody like, say, me. (laughs) You know, if I were the CEO of Mozilla, for example, and I I don't believe in in, uh, gay marriage, and I say so, well, that tolerance all of a sudden goes out the window, doesn't it? Now you're looking for a job. 
and we're going to see this, this increase. And so don't be fooled by the so-called tolerance that we see in our, in our culture. Uh, it's not tolerant of those who are perceived to be intolerant. <laughs> but in Christian circles, the way we will manifest this tolerance is by quoting, and I think, as we'll see, misquoting, Matthew 7, 1, judge not, or you too will be judged from the words of Jesus. And we will quote that when there's a discussion and we disagree about something, and then somebody will pull out the trump card and say, well, you're judging me. And so what is the, what is the immediate context here? And then what is the, what is the biblical, overall biblical context that can help us get a handle on what Jesus is saying and how it is that we ought to make proper evaluations? Well, Jesus says in verse 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So, verse 2, Jesus is saying, for, because. Here's why you should be careful in the way you make evaluations. For, because. However you do that, you're going to be judged likewise. So, in verse 2, Jesus immediately gives us a clue that he is talking about the manner in which you judge. That he's not saying all judgment is, uh, is uh, hereby prohibited, but rather you need to be careful about the way you judge, for in the same way you judge others, he says in verse 2. And then he goes on famously to talk about the speck in your brother's eye that you observe while you have a log sticking out of your, out of your forehead. Okay? Now, Jesus goes on then after that teaching through five verses about judging and the manner in which you judge and then hypocritical judgments, beginning in verse 3. And he says this is, of course, improper ways of evaluating, of judging. But then notice verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. In the context of judge not that you be not judged. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you know a dog when you see one? Don't you have to make a a judgment about that? How do you know a pig when you see one? You have to make discernment and evaluation about that, correct? Correct. So even in the very context where Jesus says this, he is saying you have to make evaluations about how you carry out your ministry and to whom you carry out your your ministry. And that is going to require that you make an evaluation, that you make a judgment. So this idea that you don't judge, so it's a common phrase today, don't judge me. Uh, And that means I can do what I want with impunity is false to biblical thinking, and it cannot rest upon Matthew chapter 7. Now, let me give you a few other verses where the Bible very clearly tells us that we have to make evaluations. John chapter 7 and verse 24, John seven twenty-four. If judging is necessary and not prohibited, but rather it's a particular type of judging that's prohibited... Well, then what does the Bible say about making judgments, making evaluations? John 7, verse 24, Jesus says this, Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. 
So notice, there are certain kinds of evaluation that are, 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 are wrong bases for judgment, for evaluation. Mere outward appearance is not the basis upon which a judgment ought to be made, says Jesus. But instead, make a right judgment. Notice he enjoins, judgment is to be made, but it's got to be made rightly. So far from the idea, and of course this is, these are both Jesus talking. Matthew 7, judge not. Now Jesus says judge. Which clearly teaches you that in Matthew 7, he is not prohibiting all judgment. But rather a particular kind of judgment. And here he is saying judge rightly. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 15. 1 Corinthians 2:15. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things. The person with, in the context, with the, the mind of the, of the Spirit is thereby equipped to make proper evaluations about all things. And so here, again, the Bible is enjoining us to, to, make, to make judgments, to make decisions, to discern, to evaluate. Now, hopefully that's clear. Matthew 7 is pulled out of context and misquoted, and that's supposed to end discussion. When the Bible spilled a lot of ink telling us that we need to discern, evaluate, make judgments. The question is, what basis, what type of judgment you make? Now, what's the problem then with us buying into the idea that we can't make judgments? Well, that has very practical ministry implications for us. Because if we can't make evaluations, hear this, we can't help each other. I can't help you with your struggle if I don't evaluate that you've got a struggle. Now, you, let, me, let me rephrase that. If you come to me and say, I've got a struggle, well, then you've made the judgment yourself. But suppose I observe you having a struggle that you don't see. One approach would be, say, good, mind your own business. You do your own thing, I'll do my own thing. We'll show up at church, shake each other's hand, have a bagel together, and then from there, never the twain shall meet. But is that the way the Bible lays out our relationships and our responsibilities to one another? And the answer to that is no. Now, where does it teach this? Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, verse 1. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, mature, should restore him gently. Now, notice the assumption there. I see you or you see me caught in a sin. And having made then an evaluation about this thing that you're caught in, I'm to take action or you're to take action. All of which requires that you make a judgment, correct? So if we buy into the idea that judgments can never be made, we have also bought into the idea that ministry can't take place on this personal level. And yet God calls us to that very kind of ministry. You need not turn there. But Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, 
Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. And it goes on to talk about the deceitfulness of sin and how we become entrapped in that deceitfulness. But notice, it says, see to it, brothers, that none of you. So does the Bible teach that I'm my brother's or sister's keeper? And the answer is yes. That we're in this thing together. And that if you see me caught in sin, you love me enough to lovingly confront me about that. Which means you have to make an evaluation and a judgment about it. And vice versa. So the implications of the, this are, are far-reaching for, for ministry and for personal ministry within, within the church. And we are going to continue to be bludgeoned with this in a culture that prides itself on tolerance, but of course the kind of inconsistent tolerance that I've already talked about. Church discipline could not be done if it were not possible for us to judge. You all know what church discipline is. Someone has sinned. They're approached about that sin. They're they're called lovingly to repentance and to restoration. But Jesus says in Matthew 18, and this is another of the passages that we're going to look at that gets misquoted, but Matthew 18 and verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go to him, show him his error, his fault, just the two of you. If he hears you, if he receives what you've said, then you've won your brother. But if not, you remember Jesus' instruction, take two or three others. And if he will not hear them, then tell it to the church. And if he will not hear the church, then treat him or her like a publican, a tax collector, as if their profession of faith is invalid. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. All of which, again, presupposes that you see something, something's happened, you've made an evaluation and a judgment, and then you act upon it. So if we buy into the false idea that judging of any type is precluded in Scripture, we can't engage in personal ministry, and we can't engage in church discipline that Jesus requires. So lose the idea that judging is prohibited in the Bible. It is not. Hypocritical judgment, wrong judgment on a false basis of outward appearance and other kinds of false bases are prohibited in Scripture, but not evaluation and discernment and judging itself. So that's one of the common misquoted passages in Scripture. Here's another one. Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Now, as we do these, if I hit your favorite misquoted verse, if any of these verses are the ones that when you are at the family reunion, you are known for throwing down, then forgive me. But in all seriousness, let's, let's, let's approach this humbly. And let's say, Lord, correct me if what I say is correct in context. Then, Lord, correct me, correct us so that I don't misuse and mishandle your word. And if you've been misusing any of these passages, then obviously stop doing that. And thank the Lord for showing it to you because you don't want to continue it. Now, Proverbs 22 and verse 6 contains another one of these verses that is sometimes misused. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. The way this is misused is that it is is used as a legal guarantee 
that if you train a child in a particular way, then that child will turn out the right way. Train the child the right way, they turn out the right way. That's the way this has been interpreted, a legal guarantee. So conversely, if they didn't turn out the right way, what does that mean? You didn't raise them the right, the right way. So many a parent uh, has suffered, some needlessly, because they have trained their children in the right way, and the child has gone wayward. But they've been bludgeoned by a passage like this as a legal guarantee. So, you know, you take, uh, you take uh, Brother Owen here, Pastor Owen from Ohio, Joel Owen and his wife, faithfully raised their child, but look what happened, okay? <laughs> so, and it's, look, it's not your fault. Nobody blames you, okay? It's your fault. <laughs> So, what, if, if it's not a legal guarantee, then what is it? Here's what it is. It is contained within a book called Proverbs, and it's that. It's a proverb. And Proverbs, the nature of a proverb is that it is not a legal guarantee. It's not a law, but rather a proverb is a general truth. It is generally true that as a child is trained in a particular way, they follow in that way. But it is not absolutely true. And the Bible is not then in error here because the Bible didn't intend to teach that. The intended meaning of a proverb is that very thing, a general truth. And so the context of Proverbs 22.6 is the book of Proverbs, and Proverbs are not legal guarantees, but they are, but they are general truths. So Ezekiel 18 says, contrary to the idea that if you raise them right, they turn out right. If you raise them wrong, they turn out wrong. Ezekiel 18 says there will be times when a violent man will have a righteous son and a righteous man will have a violent son. So if this were a legal guarantee, then Ezekiel would be contradicting that. But there is no contradiction in Scripture because the proverb has simply been misinterpreted as a legal guarantee rather than a general truth, a proverb. Now, I mentioned Matthew 18 earlier. Um, if, you, if you can, turn there now to Matthew 18, where Jesus teaches on this process that's called church discipline, confronting a brother who has sinned, and then if they will not receive you, then the subsequent steps that are to be taken. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, let me stop there. So the person has sinned, you've made a judgment, you've made an evaluation, they've sinned. You go to them, you confront them with the sin. The person refuses to repent. If they do repent, then the matter ends there. It goes to nobody else. It's just between the two of you. However, if the person refuses to repent, now you take two or three others along so that, Jesus says, and then notice that in verse 16, it's a quotation, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, that's a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 19. And in Deuteronomy chapter 19, the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, we are given rules for evidence. 
in a legal proceeding. And in a legal proceeding, a person cannot be convicted unless there's the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so now here, a person cannot be convicted just upon the say-so of somebody else. If you've got a he said, she said, then the church cannot take action because we don't know the truth of the matter. If there are not two or three witnesses, then the matter cannot be moved forward. And that's then a protection against a false accusation being made against a brother or sister. Think about it. If Jesus says, you know, just go, and then if they don't hear you, tell it to the church, yikes, right? You get hacked off at somebody, (laughs) and now you can just lay out anything you want, true or false, without any rules of evidence. Again, you need not uh, turn there because we're going to look in, if we get to it in time, Today, 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're going to look at another uh, misquoted verse, but in 1 Timothy 5, there's a passage about accusations against pastors, against elders. And it says there, receive, do not receive an accusation against an elder or a pastor unless it is by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Now, why is that? That's to protect people who are in the public, in public figures in the church, pastors, from false accusation. And the same thing is true here in Matthew 18. There has to be the evidence, and only if there's absolute evidence could it ever then go to to the church. Now, what if you go to the person you know they've sinned, they lie about it, they deny it, but you don't have any evidence beyond that. It's just you know it, they know it, and God knows it. What happens? Well, then they're going to get away with it, right? Nope. God has a way of revealing things, one, and God can handle that, can't He? And so we leave it with Him at that point. But then beyond that, verse 17, if He refuses to listen, there is the tour, there really is the absolute evidence, then tell it to the church, and if He refuses to listen even to the church, treat Him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And then notice verse 19, and this is the verse... uh, The next two verses are the ones that are often misquoted. I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Now, verse 20 is, and maybe you've used it this way, maybe you've heard it used this way. Verse 20 is used as the verse to encourage you when nobody shows up for Bible study. If two or three are gathered, Jesus is with us, so let us rejoice, okay? No no kidding, I mean, that's the way it is. Two or three gathered, I've heard that a zillion times over the years. But in the context, what is the context of two or three? I mean, Jesus started this whole two or three thing, didn't he? Take two or three others along so that every word might be established in the presence of two or three witnesses. And I take then this, verse 20, in that context to be a warning against the one who sins to say, not only do you have to deal with the two or three, not only do you have to deal with the church, most importantly, I commend what they are doing. I agree. I, the Lord, am in their midst in this process. So it's a solemn warning to those who would sin and ignore the process of being confronted with sin and refusing to 
to repent. All right, another. Proverbs 29 and verse 18. If we haven't hit your favorite verse yet, don't worry, we will. Proverbs 29, verse 18. Now, if you have the King James Version, here's what it says there. Where there is no vision, everybody remember? The people perish. This is often misquoted, misused. Maybe quoted correctly, but then misapplied, misused. And it's used by politicians, it's used by church leaders, anybody in leadership. If there's no vision, everything falls apart. And so I, the politician, I, your leader, need to cast a vision. Now, I believe in leaders casting vision. We had our servants seminars the last two Sunday nights, and one of the things we do there is talk about our vision for the next few years as a church, and we set some goals and so on. I think it's a very good practical thing for us to do, but I never use this verse. (laughs) Where there's no vision, the people perish. And here's why, because if you have an NIV, you see there, instead of saying where there is no vision, it says where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. So why does the King James say where there is no vision and the NIV says where where there is no revelation? How are those related? Well, you'll remember that visions were a chief means of revelation, that God would give visions to His people, particularly the prophets. And so, if you were to look at Isaiah chapter 1, first verse, it says, this is the vision of the prophet Isaiah. And so, the the 66 chapters of, of Isaiah are now a revelation from God, but God has given in the form of a, of a vision. Or if you were to look in your New Testament, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, God has at various times and in various ways, spoken to His people through the prophets. But He has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. Now notice, at various times and in various ways, and one of those various ways that God would reveal, would speak, was in visions. And so that is why then, Proverbs twenty nineteen says, if there is no vision, if there is no message from God, if there is no word from God, and the NIV then rightly says, where there is no revelation, then the people cast off restraint. They don't know what to do, and, uh, and then everyone does what's right in his own eyes rather than from God's dictate. So if you hear a politician do that, he's using Scripture for his own ends, or he just hasn't taken how to get the most out of your Bible. So I heard Bill Clinton do that. And, uh, and it's not, I'm not making a political statement. Any, I've heard lots of politicians do that, of both, of both parties. But, uh, but it's done often. And then, in the remaining time we have, I'd like to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. Earlier I said uh, an accusation against a pastor. I think I said it's in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's in 1 Timothy 5. Forgive me, 1 Timothy 5. But the passage I want to look at here is 1 Thessalonians 5, and one that is very often misused. And if we haven't hit your favorite thing yet, now we have. The moment of truth is upon you. 
Verse 22 in the King James says, Abstain from all, anybody remember? From all appearance of evil. And the way that that verse, that line is used, abstain from all appearance of evil, is this. If it looks bad to somebody, then don't do it. And that is often used as a trump, the trump card in a discussion about, should I participate in X? And I'm not going to get into the various debates, but should a Christian participate in and then as the debate goes back and forth, then somebody puts down the trump card of 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from all appearance of evil. If it didn't have the appearance of evil, then we wouldn't even be discussing it. So therefore, abstain from the appearance of evil, and then we'll, all will be well. So 1 Thessalonians 5.22 is that trump card for anything that somebody deems to be, to be questionable. But the NIV says, instead of abstain from all appearance of evil, it says, avoid every kind of evil. And remember, the overall interpretive principle that will serve you well as you read through your Bible is context determines meaning. So here you've got one verse with just one line that says, avoid every kind of evil, but it's in a context. And in fact, the NIV does us the favor of putting these verses in paragraphs to try to help you with the context. So notice that the paragraph that that line is contained in actually contains four verses, 19, 20, 21, and 22. And the reason they're all in a paragraph is because they're all dealing with the same subject matter. So context determines meaning. What is the context? Verse 19, do not put out or quench the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. Now, the context is then about messages from God in the form of the Spirit's guidance and prophecy. And then because of that, because God is giving messages to His people through the, through the prophets... You need, to be, you need to be careful in what messages you accept as authentic and those you do not. And that's why verse 20 then says, test. Test everything. Test each message that you hear for whether or not it is indeed the voice of God or not. It's again a requiring discernment, evaluation. Test everything. And then in that context... Avoid any message, any false teaching that comes to you from anyone who is supposing to, to be a prophet. So hold on to what is, is good, verse 21, but avoid that which is not as, as part of this evaluation of the messages that are being brought about. And these are messages that are being brought about in the context of the congregation. Because the verbs in this passage, in this paragraph, they're all plural verbs. This is all stuff that's happening within the church. And the church is now being called to discernment of messages that are purport to come from God. Now, let's suppose that the idea 
of verse 21, 1 Thessalonians 5, was really, if it appears evil, don't do it. Let's suppose that really was the deal. It's not. In the context, that's not. But let's just suppose for sake of discussion, that's really what it was saying. Who would get caught on the wrong side of that in the Bible? Who would have violated that very thing? Do you remember Jesus being accused of that? You're hanging around with a rough crowd. And people are talking, Jesus. People are talking about you eating and drinking with sinners. And 1 Thessalonians 5.21 hadn't been written yet. But if it had been, you can be sure somebody would have been there with the trump card as we had the debate about Jesus, should you be hanging around with these people? And Jesus would make the case that, you know, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, and therefore I need to, he would be saying all that. And it would go back and forth, and then finally somebody would say, abstain from all appearance of evil, Jesus. You see, Jesus himself would have violated that very notion, if that's indeed what it was saying. And so I encourage you, dear friends, in the strongest terms possible, to not use any of these passages in an uh, ill-conceived way. If we are people of the book, and we love the book, and we want to live by the book, then we've got to quote and apply the book accurately. Now, there are a bunch more of those. and We're going to look at a bunch more uh, next week. But that's enough to make half of you mad. I'll get the other half of you mad <laughs> next week. We'll pray and be dismissed in a moment, but let me ask any of the guys who can stick around to help us as we bring some tables in, because we're having the dinner in this room tonight, so we're going to have to do two things. We're going to have to stack chairs to get them out of the way to bring the tables in, and then we'll have to put the, ch- the chairs uh, around those tables. So I am told that the tables are going to come through that door, and, uh, and then the chairs need to be stacked in stacks of five. Not ten, not to make five, okay? That's what the carts can handle. That's actually what the chairs can handle. They stack pretty well if you do that. So, guys, if any of you can hang around, help stack chairs uh, in uh, stacks of five and uh, help us get these tables in here, that would, be, that would be terrific. Now, guys, don't do that until people leave. Um, I know you're hungry. I know you want to get home for lunch. But I have seen guys pick people up in their chair... <laughs> Okay, we, we can't do that, all right? Those of you who are not ladies, especially, since you're not going to be doing that physical work, I would encourage you to exit the premises as soon as I'm done with, with this prayer, though, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the blessings of this Lord's Day. Thank you for the opportunity to be with your people, to encourage and be encouraged. Thank you for the opportunity to sing praise to your name to give back to you as you have first given to us. And Lord, to hear the good words of of our brother, Pastor Matt, and to think about what you have done and what you are going to do in and through our respective churches in the years ahead. Lord, we thank you for this time as well, for us to look at your word, to consider your word, and to make sure that we are handling your word in a way that is accurate and thus honors the God of the word. Lord, we ask you to go with us uh, this afternoon and then bring us back tonight as we have a, a great time in honoring our brother and sister and their family.
And then we ask you beyond that this week to go with us as we go out as your ambassadors to remember who it is that we serve and who it is we represent. Help us to represent you accurately in the way we live and in the way we speak the gospel. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.